The scripture reading is the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. It can be found on page 906 in the Black Bibles. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they had not understood the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Leslie. Don't you love when an educator reads? They just read so great. It's awesome. Y'all, welcome. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. It's a joy to have all of you here joining us. A particular welcome if uh, this is your first time at Christ the King or one of your first times. We're, we're so glad to have you. It's fun to see folks home from college who, who are visiting families too. Welcome to you. Just so glad to have all of you here with us. At, at Christ the King, we believe that the Bible is telling a story that is fundamentally news. It's news about what God has done to save people. And the reason that we think that this is so important is because at this church, we don't believe that we're good enough to have advice about how we can save ourselves. In fact, here we believe that Apart from the news of Jesus' saving work on our behalf, we would be completely lost. So 
Maybe if this is your first time to be in a place of worship in a long time, I don't want you to feel like you're around a bunch of people who think they've got it together. We don't. All of us who've joined this church have admitted to one another that we need the news of what Jesus has done to save us. Now that's our hope. So let me pray and ask that he would help us now as we consider what we heard read for us. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that you have sent your son into this world and that he comes bearing um, the good news of his kingdom and all that he has done to rescue us. We pray that you would help us now as we consider um, these words on this Easter Sunday. Help us to see Jesus, to see our need for him and your provision of him for us. And it's uh, all this we ask in his name. Amen. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I walked into our living room and two of my children had uh, turned on the TV and they were watching a movie and it was The Fox and the Hound. Y'all, The Fox and the Hound, you put that movie on and you think it's just this nice, innocent, cutesy story and, and Disney just lures you in and then they go for the kill. Because The Fox and the Hound, it is an odyssey of emotions watching that movie. It's cute, it's fun, it's nice, there's friendship, but then there's betrayal, and then the scene that I walked in on, that they were watching, is one of the most terrifying scenes, I think, in children's cinema. Because it's when the bear jumps out, and this grizzly bear, drawn to scale next to the hunter who's trying to shoot him, is probably 30 feet tall. And it's not, the grizzly bear's eyes are red. I went back and checked this morning just to make sure. His eyeballs are literally, it is a demon bear that jumps out. And I, I look at the couch and two of my kids are watching and one of them is kind of leaned back and, and she's into it, but she's not terrified. And the other one is literally watching it like this. Can't even look at it. Because he doesn't know how the movie ends. The other one did. See, there was one who was in that room who was in the dark about how does this story end? And it brought utter terror. And the Easter story begins, did you see in John 20, the beginning of our reading, it begins in darkness. No one knows how this story ends. It's, it's easy for us who maybe are familiar with this story to not put ourselves in their shoes of, of what it must have been like when they didn't know how the story ends. It begins in darkness. And we've been, we've been going through the book of John for I mean, almost a year now. And one of the things that you've heard me say is that John is in, in a lot of ways retelling the Genesis story when he writes his book. Think about how, remember how the books begin? The book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John begins his book, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's telling, he's telling a new creation story in his book. And so again, on the day of resurrection, John starts by telling it like the creation story because this is a recreation story. So in John 20 verse one, when he says, now on the first day, He's calling us again back to that creation story. And do you remember in Genesis what that creation story begins like? In Genesis 1-2, there's darkness. 
There's darkness over the face of the deep. There's chaos and emptiness. The Hebrew phrase was tohu vabohu. It was actually our wireless password in seminary. It's kind of nerdy, but it's the truth. Tohu vabohu, which means empty and void. That's what the creation was like. It was without form, chaotic. Tohu, without form, chaotic and void, empty. And this story, this story in John chapter 20, it has that chaos in it. You see, you see it with everyone running around. It begins in the dark and Mary, Mary goes to the tomb. She sees that it's empty and she doesn't immediately understand what it means. She thinks the body's been stolen. She runs back to tell the disciples and then John and Peter go running. Everyone's running back and forth. John, who's the other disciple in this story, and Peter run. And John's really clear to let us know that he was faster than Peter. He says it twice. He wants us to know that he gets there. And they don't know what's happening. It's a story of chaos and of emptiness. Like in Genesis 1-2, there is emptiness, except now it's an empty tomb. And the darkness, the darkness of that, of that empty tomb is one where Mary loses hope. She is weeping. Her hope is, has been dashed with the darkness of that tomb and the darkness of that morning that she has awoken to. And friends, this is who the Easter story is for. The Easter story is for people who walk in darkness. Is that you? You felt the darkness of this world press in around you and around those whom you love. We see that darkness in the book of John, the way that even it's expressed physically in people's bodies. The darkness of the curse of this world. People, there's people who are lame, people who are sick, blind, paralyzed. And we see the shame that they carry in their bodies, the way that it ostracizes them. They're cast out, even blamed in John chapter nine, if you remember, for their pain and for their suffering. And some of you know this kind of darkness of physical pain. Rising every morning with chronic pain that you're tired of talking about or maybe even tired of looking for a solution. Your TMJ, your migraines, your back pain, your MS, headaches, fibromyalgia, arthritis, the violence of cancer treatments and all that that entails. And you grit your teeth and you try to bear it, but you can feel the heaviness and the darkness of it all. Or maybe it's the darkness of emotional pain, rising every morning and then getting that stab of remembrance, the grief of what happened or the trauma that happened to you and its remembrance that follows you around like a shadow threatening to swallow you up. Some of you know the darkness of relational pain, the broken relationships, the parting of a dear friend, divorce, an estranged child, loneliness, walking into a cafeteria and no one's face is looking for you. No seat is saved. 
Perhaps it's the darkness of depression or it's anxiety or it's an addiction or a secret sin or the feelings of despair. And then of course there is the mother of all darkness, death itself, the drain sucking at the bottom of life, pulling us into its void, that great darkness like the gaping black mouth of the tomb that Mary approaches in the dark. And as I meditated on what that must have been like for Mary, I wrote this reflection to try to help us imagine that first Easter in her life in the dark. In the stillness of morning, the silence over the earth is cracked in two. Pierced with the wails of a woman, she cries as one familiar with crying. She cries like one grieving that her crying won't stop. It can't. She can't. If you were to hear her cry in that dark morning, you would already know why she wails. Hers is the weeping reserved only for the loss of a loved one who is precious. Hot, wet tears fill her bleary, sleepless eyes, her throat frayed by the protests emanating from deep within her soul. Here in the darkness of the morning, The chill of death's remembrance runs down her spine, squeezes her lungs, and leaves her breathless, empty. And now this mockery, this mockery from death to leave her living without her life that has been taken. And now the stab of pain because her beloved friend's body is gone. And now hope leaks out of her like water from a cracked bottle. She only wanted to tend to his body. She only wanted to show him one last kindness, to see his face again, the face of the only man who had been all of kindness to her. When she was beset with her sin, with all the shame that it brought, when she could look no man in the face, when her life was possessed and owned by the merciless demons who mocked, who accused, who cursed, who sought to demolish every last vestige of the image of God in her being, it was he who saw her. His kindness that led her to repentance, to restoration, to wholeness, to peace, and now his body is gone. His face, his smile, his laugh, his voice, his knowing look, his eye on the sparrow of her soul. Woman, why are you weeping? Why? Why? They've taken away my Lord, just like everything else at some point has been taken from her in her life, her body, her mind, her dignity, and now her hope taken. All that's left is chaos and emptiness, darkness. But then into that darkness, there's a voice. The same voice that spoke over the dark, chaotic waters on the first day of creation, now that voice with a word pierces the darkness as a new day dawns on Easter Sunday. And with that word, the emptiness is filled. The chaos is stilled and light comes into the darkness with one word, her name, Mary. It's the dawn of Easter. It's the dawn that breaks in at the point of her darkness. Friend, if you are here this morning and you feel the darkness of the world pressing in, I want you to know that that's the exact place that Jesus loves to meet people. 
It's the exact place where the dawn of his new creation and new world and his new hope and life that he welcomes us into breaks in. Can you, can you imagine the joy that Mary felt? All the sadness, all the grief turned to joy. She grabs hold of Jesus. We have no long how long that embrace lasted. But Jesus also knows that it's not yet time for his eternal embrace because the story isn't finished. He still has work that he's doing. Perhaps he's maybe even doing some of the work when she sees him in verse 15. Did you see his mistaken identity? What, what does she think that he is? The gardener. Why does she think he's the gardener? Well, they are in a garden, but what do gardeners do? They, they garden. She looks and she assumes that he's a gardener. Why? Perhaps it's because he's already beginning to push against the curse to push against the thorns and thistles and weeds that have filled his creation since the fall of mankind. And now here, as John is retelling us this recreation story, hearkening back to the book of Genesis, he's telling us about a new Adam, this new gardener, who unlike Adam, has gone into God's garden and is going to accomplish the work that God gave Adam to do, which is to fill the cosmos with his glory and his light and his love and his beauty. And because Jesus has broken the back of death, because he has risen, because he has fulfilled the promise all the way back in Genesis 3, that there would be an offspring of the woman who would war against the offspring of the serpent. And that though the offspring of the serpent would bruise his heel, that would come as the heel crushes the head of the serpent. Because Jesus has done this, he has defeated death on Easter Sunday. And yet his story is not over. It's why Jesus says in verse 17, do not yet cling to me. Because he's going to ascend to his throne, to his God and to her God to his father and to her father. And there he will reign over all things until he comes again. Jesus, Jesus is going to ascend so that he may govern and watch over his people as, do you know what they're gonna do? What are they gonna do next? They're going to go and tell others about the news. And Jesus is going to ascend so that he can watch over them, so that he can send his spirit to be with people all over the world as the good news of the risen King Jesus spreads like wildfire. Mary begins this. She begins this news telling by going and announcing the good news to the disciples. Mary of all people. A woman that most theologians believe was a prostitute who the Bible tells us was demon possessed. That is the herald of the good news Someone who needs it, right? That's us. We need this good news. She goes and heralds it to a bunch of people who also needed it. Disciples who had denied him, who had run away from him. And yet Jesus is determined still to rescue them. He's determined still to pursue them. And so he sends the good news of what he's done to them. And these these disciples, these same scared disciples 
who were days before denying that they even knew Jesus to a servant girl like Peter. These same disciples would later go on and announce that good, to the, that good news to the world at the cost of their own life. This is something that we need to pay attention to. Alistair McGrath is a faculty member at Oxford. He's fairly smart. He has three doctorates, one in molecular biophysics, one in theology, and one in intellectual history. Listen to what he says. We have strong data on at least the martyr. He's talking about outside of the Bible. We have strong data on at least the martyrdoms of Peter, Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus, recorded by Josephus and Clement of Rome, both before the close of the first century. Josephus, of course, was not even a Christian. So we cannot argue that he wanted to make Christians look good. Further, Roman historians like Tacitus and Suetonius, along with the Roman governor Pliny the Younger, also tell us that early Christians were persecuted and even killed. These were also non-Christian authors who were trying to disparage Christianity, not brag about believers. Then just a few years later, others died for their faith, like Ignatius and Polycarp. Willing deaths show that the martyrs sincerely believed their own reports. So just to preach Jesus in the early church context would expose the preacher to at least the possibility of death. Virtually no scholars would deny that this occurred. Why would they do this? They saw the risen Jesus. They believed that they saw the risen Jesus and they carried that news out to the world even though it meant that they were carrying it to their doom. But you can do that when you know how the story ends, right? When you know how the movie ends, it's not so scary anymore. When you know how the story ends and they've seen that the story ends for the Christian with resurrection, with new life. It's how the Bible ends its story. John, that same apostle who peered into the empty tomb, God gives a vision and allows him to peer ahead and to see the end of the story in Revelation 21. And John tells us, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, I, wanna, I just want to be honest for a second and tell you, well, not for a second, I'm trying to be honest the whole sermon, but I'm be honest and tell you one of my fears. One of my fears is that you would hear this and be unaffected by it. Think about how calluses build up on our hands. You swing a golf club a lot of times, that club rubs against your skin. You play a guitar, those strings rub up against your skin. I'm told the same thing happens with like barbells when you're bench pressing, but what happens? Calluses. As we rub up against something, if that something doesn't pierce or break our skin, it causes calluses. If the gospel story of Jesus doesn't break your heart, if it doesn't break in, if you can sit here and hear the Easter story and just be like, yeah, that's a great story. Friends, 
do not let calluses build upon your heart. I've been praying that the Lord would replace our heart of stone, which is the heart that we all have, and give us a heart of flesh so that we can hear the good news that this is, because it changes everything. And if it's not true, why are we here? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, we're fools. We're most to be pitied. What are we even doing? But if he has, it changes everything. I told y'all last week um, that many folks from our church uh, have been particularly grieved about what happened at Covenant Presbyterian uh, three Mondays ago, two Mondays ago. And I know that's affected lots of different people in lots of different ways. I, I, I used to worship at that church. It was the first place that I worked out of college as a summer intern. And after hearing the news about that, and particularly, I thought, I thought about Chad, their senior pastor, as he, as he grieved the loss of his, his little girl, his three older boys, and had their one girl at the end, sweet Hallie. And on, on, on that Monday, I, I, I thought, how, how is he gonna continue? And, and, and Chad said, at the funeral, uh, as the funeral approached, he admitted to, to wondering the same. Covenant sits um, overlooking a hill over part of Nashville. And he admitted that the day of the tra- that the tragedy occurred, he wondered if he would ever be able to drive up that hill again. But then just five days later, after losing his daughter, At her funeral in that church, he told his grieving friends and family and the church that he and they would continue to ascend that hill in protest against the forces of evil. In protest against the forces of evil that would have them cower in fear as if death has the final word. It does not. Jesus has the final word. So our brothers and sisters in Nashville ascend that hill and we assemble in this sanctuary in protest against the darkness that plagues our lives in protest against death itself. We assemble with the hope and assurance that Jesus Christ has defeated death, that he is risen, that death does not have the final word, that any who have died in Christ are with him in spirit right now in the heavenly places and that Jesus will come again to resurrect their bodies just like his own, so that we might live soul and body for eternity with our King Jesus who is risen. He is not in the tomb. He is alive and he will come again. Do you have that hope? Has it pierced your heart? This changes everything. Jesus welcomes you. Not to clean yourself up and to figure it out and follow all the right advice so that he'll finally save you. He welcomes you to believe the news, to put your faith that the news is true, that he's risen, and that he welcomes you to come and follow him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that your love was made manifest to us through the most precious thing that you have, your own son. 
Jesus, we thank you that you entered into our sin and our sadness. We praise you that you broke the back of death and we ask, we ask that you would give us faithfulness to follow you as we await for the dawn. As we sit in the dark and we wait, we thank you that you have given us the light of your truth and your word and your spirit. And we pray that you would help us to follow you. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.